This week's TribCast is sponsored by Lone Star College Works for Texas, providing real-world workforce training and state-of-the-art facilities to meet employers' demands. Find out more at lonestar.edu. And Chad Cantella has been providing excellent lobbying, political strategy, and business development support to clients for over 20 years. Learn more at teamcantella.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tripcast for December 30th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of the News and Politics at the Tribune. And this week, as the as we go into our last Tripcast of the year, I think we'll take a look back with um, our departing CEO, Evan Smith, who I believe is on his second to last day of work at the Tribune. Hello, Evan. Uh, y- yes, Matthew. Hello. And who's counting? Yeah. Uh, 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 by the way, I'm counting. Um <laughs> I, uh, it's like I can see the off-ramp ahead on the road, you know, yes. I've got my directional on. I'm not quite off yet, but I, but I see it up there. Indeed, and we are, Evan is joining us from his uh, extremely empty and, un, and packed up and uh, cleared out office. So it's, it's in fact, probably technically not even my office anymore, but whatever, that's fine. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, and I think what we are going to do here is I want to talk with Evan a little bit about uh, politics and and looking back on the state that he's been involved in covering for 13 years at the Tribune and more at at Texas Monthly. And then we will talk about some media stuff and the Tribune stuff in, in, in the second segment of this. But Evan, you started the Tribune um, along with Ross Ramsey and John Thornton, November 9th, 2009. November 3rd, November 3rd. November 3rd, 2009. Uh, you know, I'm fact checking you already, Watkins. This is, I, I, I'd say it's going well. Indeed. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, this, I believe, is true. K. Bailey Hutchinson was gearing up to challenge Rick Perry for governor in the, the next year's election. Right. Um, Perry was, I guess, about to, you know, seeking to become the longest tenured governor in the state. Um, you know, but your, of course, career goes back even farther than that. Uh, you know, like I said, covering Texas Monthly. We are now in a different era of politics. The people are different and there's been change. I wonder if just like looking back at this as you as you move on to something that's less Texas centric, what do you feel like the headline is of the, the Texas politics and public policy that you covered, the way things have changed and shifted over the last 13 years? Well, well, the headline, and I say this only partly kidding, is it sucks. <laughs> It, it, it sucks now in a way that it didn't suck for the last 30 years. And this is not about party or ideology. It's just that the environment that we do our work, the environment in which we walk the streets and run into people and, you know, attempt to do what we really do consider to be the, the people's business, the public service journalism that is baked into our mission. It's harder. It's more unpleasant. There are more obstacles put in our way than ever before. Politics and politicians have gotten uglier and meaner and less willing to be scrutinized through a process that you and I, as young people, as young journalists, understood to be part of the game. Mm -hmm. Part of the game was if you stood for office and you happened to get elected and you served, you spent taxpayer dollars, you passed laws and you appropriated uh, budget dollars to, to solve the problems of the world or even to solve the problems of your world and not the rest of our world. Part of the game was that the press was there to keep watchful eye over you, to hold you accountable, to ask you hard questions. You answered them. 
to ask you questions during election time and to ask you questions between elections that illuminated the work that you did and, and your point of view about the world. Today, it's rare. It's not, it's not nothing, but it's close to nothing that you find people who come to public office who, who actually want to be subject to that kind of scrutiny and they figure out all kinds of ways to avoid you. Do you think that this is largely the result of the nationalization of state and local politics? I mean, it feels like more, so much more so now than 13 years ago and maybe even longer, everything yep. is about national politics. Everything is about Joe Biden or Donald Trump, even if we're talking about a state representative race or anything. Right. Like that. Uh, absolutely. I think that's part of it. I also think part of it is that permission has been given. I'm deliberately using the passive voice. Mm because we can have a conversation if you want about who gave permission, but permission has been given to shit talk the media, to ignore us, to call us names, to make us the enemy, to, to in bad faith, try to undermine the institution of the free press. Like all of that is also part of, of, of the mix right now. And look, I don't think the press is blameless for the problems that it confronts every day. I think we're way too arrogant I think we're way too defensive. I don't think we do a good job of walking in the shoes of other people. Like I could go through the list of things that I think we institutionally need to do better. But there is no question that there has been a conscious, intentional, aggressive effort to undermine the relationship between the press and the people that they cover, often by the people being covered, and to give the public reason to doubt that we're in this to serve them. Uh, and I think that's part of what has changed. Look, Rick Perry, as you know, was in our office not long ago to film an ad mm -hmm. in our studio. And I'll, I'll, I'll reveal something. I went up to Rick Perry and I said, I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I, I went up to Rick Perry and I said, off the record, I miss you. Because, you know, covering Rick Perry, who is a conservative and who, you know, had his own problems with the press from time to time, Rick Perry was a happy warrior. Rick Perry knew that part of the job was to engage. And as much as he might have groused about this or that and the coverage of this news organization or that one, Rick Perry understood that it was part of his obligation to play that game. And I think a lot of people in office right now think no. Yeah. You know, I um, when I interviewed with you for a job at the Tribune back in 2009, as things. Oh, were I remember it. I remember it. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, one of the questions I asked you, which I thought was a good question at the time, but looking back seems like hopelessly naive, was, will y'all be on the bus with the candidates as they travel around the state, you know? Right. And I think about um, uh, Dan Patrick's bus tour around the state during the most recent election, which right. we found out where he was when he tweeted about it afterwards and was no longer there. you know. If that... I could go back 13 years, the answer to your question would turn out to have been, yes, we're going to be on the bus. No, we're not going to be on the bus. And ultimately, who cares? Yeah. Because access is not a determinant of the kind of journalism that we need to be doing. And proximity is not destiny as far as covering people. And for a long time in journalism, access was everything. And I think right now, access has corrupted the process. That's not to say that we don't want to be in the room. We do. But at the same time, we can't be dissuaded. This is really where I'm going with this. In the environment that I've now sketched out to you in gory detail, we cannot be dissuaded from our work. And if we're not on the bus, if we're not in the room, if people cut us out of the conversation, if the only way we hear from those people is when they tweet about it, we still are going to cover them too bad. Too bad for them. 
Do you think that this is a smart strategic decision by the lawmakers and the the people who are advising them to do this? I mean, is there something to be said about you know having knowing the the reporters who are covering you, maybe they will trust you a little bit more, maybe they'll give you the benefit of the doubt a little bit more, maybe they will right think twice about writing about what they write about you because they're going to have to see you the next day. I think relationships matter. You know, I, I have had relationships over the years with Republicans and Democrats in statewide office, Republicans and Democrats in the state legislature. Does that mean that we don't cover them, whether it was Texas Monthly or the Tribune, as aggressively as the news environment demands, as the circumstances demand? No. I have enough friends. I don't need to be friends with people and protect friends. We do journalism. That's what we do. And if you have to take the head off of somebody you have a relationship with, you do it enthusiastically because that's your job does it seem uh strange to me sometimes when it's somebody who i've known for a long time we have to write some shitty thing about them because they did something shitty yeah it seems a little strange sure it's a little awkward it never changes the obligation that we have to do our jobs mm -hmm. but sure i do think relationships matter I'll, I'll also say that in the kind of higher order of journalism uh, uh you know conceptually your story is going to be told you can tell it or we can tell it. Yeah. But it's going to be told. And so one of the things that I think is not smart strategically is the assumption that by not engaging with the press that you're somehow controlling your message. Mm -hmm. What I will say is I think that this whole attitude that we're not going to talk to the press, tr the tribalism that is the poison coursing through all of our veins is a byproduct, I believe, of the unwillingness of people to be in a room with people who they fundamentally don't agree agree with or don't think much of maybe i'll even say it that way because this is not so much about agreement it's about you know the pe people in the press corps whose answer to every question that they don't like is subject verb oh the media oh the media did it oh the media did it mm -hmm. like you know what engage sit down let's talk you may not like what we do who we are you may not like the value of our industry, our institution, but we're going to cover you. And it would be better if we were on speaking terms and civil as opposed to, you know, pretending that we don't exist until your consultant tells you it's time to attack the press on Twitter. Indeed. Yeah. Do you think that this, you know, one of the things that when I started covering the Capitol was interested to see was how much you know, even if they fought in the press or or disagreed, you know, there was a, a certain amount of cooperation between uh, Republicans and Democrats in, in multiple chambers. You know, you would see, uh, you know, when the budget comes up for a vote in the Senate and everyone all says nice things about each other before they start bashing, you know, whatever uh, came up. Do, do you think that this, you know, going back to the nationalization of of, of state and local politics, kind of continues, you know, beyond the press and the way that the, the lawmakers of, of various parties are interacting with each other? I think it's a great question. And I think your answer is exactly right. I think you're, 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 you're identifying something that is as much of a problem as what I've just described. Politicians versus the press, that's one fundamental problem that I think has a negative effect on democracy. But you're absolutely right that the incivility of people in office to other people in office it used to just be people who were in other parties than your party. Now it's sometimes the incivility of, of you to people in your party 
who you think are insufficiently whatever. Um, yeah, I think that a lot of these people can barely stand one another. In fact, can't stand one another. Um, and the contempt that they have for one another ultimately is making things worse. Now, you know, we have this nostalgia for a time that I'm not sure actually existed. You know, the, the oh, you know, in the old days when Ronald Reagan was president and Tip O'Neill was speaker, they would fight like dogs during the day and then they would have a scotch at night and everything was great. I mean, okay, maybe that was the case, fine. But I don't, I'm not talking about that. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about just the ability to understand that there are different views of issues and that you don't have to grind your opponent into dust to be in the same room with them. You can have a different uh, point of view on a mundane issue or on a controversial issue, and you can still be civil to one another. And by and large, I think that civility is gone. Now, it's interesting. When you say that out loud, there are certain kinds of people, particularly the text ledger, who'd say, oh, no, 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 that's not true. We all get along great. You know, we're, we're great. And, uh, you know, we're not like D.C., and that's what makes us different. Complete bullshit. It's complete bullshit to say the text legislature is not like D.C. It has never been more like D.C. Mm -hmm. and everything that you're talking about. It has never been more like that in the 31 years that I've been living here and watching the Capitol. I, you know, I've, I've paid close attention to every legislative session going back to 1993. So I'm coming up on 30 years of legislative sessions. This will be the 15th legislative session. I'll still pay attention, even though I'm not going to be in this job. And it has never been worse than it is right now in terms of the incivility, the, 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 the not even thinly veiled, not veiled, unveiled contempt that people have for one another. And I think it ultimately serves the state badly. But, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. So you, you, you mentioned, you know, you've been covering a lot of live sessions. Um, I know just from knowing you that you'll be closely following it closely this session, sure. but in a different way. Right. You will um, you'll still be affiliated with the Tribune, but. Is there a story, you know, whether it's in the next six months or in the coming years that you are going to most regret or miss not being a part of in the way in covering? Is there something that you're, you know, excited to watch that? Well, well, I, I, I yeah, I, I will confess that there is one storyline. It's not a new storyline, but it's mm -hmm. one that I think is going to be particularly interesting in this next session that I am interested to watch. And that is what is happening with the Republican Party in Texas. Mm -hmm. Speaking of ways in which Texas is more like D.C. and national politics and not less, mm -hmm. we are seeing the rift in the Republican Party here that is comparable to the rift in the Republican Party at the national level. Every time Matt Rinaldi tweets you have four or five legislators in the Republican Party who I consider to be quite conservative and who are not in any way the kinds of people who, um, you know, uh, are, are kind of compromisers or, you know, rhinos. Mm -hmm. These are people who are absolutely at the, at the dead center of the target in terms of the way that the legislature is constructed right now and all that who go at it with Matt Rinaldi over various aspects of, uh, of, of things that the party is doing or that he's doing that they consider to be at odds with what the party should be doing. I'm very interested in this. This is a little bit like the national Republicans who gnashed their teeth over the Trumpists. Mm -hmm. 
this is really, you know, in a state like Texas, which does not have competitive elections, where the Democrats are in such a, a, a profoundly dormant state that they can't accomplish anything or prevent anything in a legislative session like the one we're about to have on their own. They cannot. And that to the degree that they're meaningfully involved in anything, it's going to be, you know, sitting at the kids' table. Um, all we have is R versus R. We don't really have R versus D. We just saw that in the last election and in the election before that and in every election for as long as you and I can remember. Are, are you so, The R versus R story is what I'll be watching. Yeah. Are, are you surprised by that? I mean, did you, was there ever a time where you bought into the hype of whether it was Battleground Texas or Beto 1, Beto 2? No. Now, I'm, I'm always the last guy airlifted off the roof of the hotel at the end of the war <laughs> on this subject of Texas turning blue, because, because I think people fundamentally misunderstand what it will take for Texas to turn blue. People assume it's about demography when it's, in fact, about geography. The assumption that the change in the population, the composition of the population, we're now less than 40% peop uh, uh, white people in the state of Texas, more than 60% people of color for the first time in the history of the state. It will never go back. Mm -hmm. by, by 2040, one prediction, all the demographers' predictions change all the time, but by one prediction of, of the of state demographers, the white population of Texas in 2040 will be less than one-third of the overall population. And of course, the population is growing every year like crazy. And so the, that one-third is going to be of a much larger number. I mean, it's, it's nuts. Mm -hmm. People assume that as long as, as the non-white population of the state grows, that the Democrats are going to come back into power organically. I've been hearing that forever. The assumption, as we've learned, is a false assumption, is that the Hispanic population is any more monolithic in the way that it votes than the white population. We've seen in the last two elections that the Hispanic population has been much more open to the idea of supporting Republicans. And so the idea that if a, a larger Hispanic population necessarily benefits the Democrats and coming back into power is wrong. As you know, I'm obsessed with the idea that rural Texas turns out to vote as an extraordinarily high percentage of, of, its, of its overall population and, and is reliably, compulsively, voluptuously red. We had a story that we published before the election, and this election was a kind of plus one of that. Something like in the last five cycles now, including 2022, the Democrats have not cracked 25% in rural communities. If you do not get to at least 30 and more likely 33% in rural communities statewide, you have to win the vote, but you have to reduce the margin of, of loss, of defeat. You will not be competitive statewide. John Fetterman understood this, by the way, in Pennsylvania. John Fetterman got 35 and 36 and 38 and 39%. In that, you know, that middle part of Pennsylvania, James Carville once said, Pennsylvania is Pittsburgh and Philadelphia separated by Alabama. John mm -hmm. Fetterman got like 38, 39% in much of that Alabama part of Pennsylvania. He ran like five points ahead of Joe Biden in the last election versus Biden in 20. If the Democrats cannot do in Texas what John Fetterman was able to do in Pennsylvania, they're not going to turn the state blue. I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. But I mean, some of these things are correlated, right? Like the urban, the, the the state becoming more urban is also the story of the state becoming more diverse. And, you know, right. it, and it's also the story of the, the age, you know, demographic changes, right? Because the, sure. the rural population is wider and it's older. 
And sure. that also happens to be the population that votes more. Well, and, and in fact, decides the outcomes of elections. It's 3 million people in rural Texas out of a population of 30 million in the state, 20 million adults, almost 18 million registered to vote. But it's the 3 million in rural Texas who act, or uh, it's 8, 8 million who turned out to vote, pardon me, in this last election. Mm -hmm. It is the 3 million who are ultimately tipping the scales in, in, in all the statewide races. Mm -hmm. And you know, the thing is, you would think logically, if 90% plus of the population growth in the state in the next 30 years is going to be in the urban and suburban, which are kind of like metropolitan counties, you look at the numbers, you think this is good news for the Democrats. Democrats are terribly bad at turning out their folks to vote. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans are really, really good at it. And I think I, I that's go the problem. Yeah, I want to go back to the R versus R thing. Would you agree with me that on a scale, you know, when you look at some of the states that Texas gets compared to, whether it's Arizona, or especially states that, you know, Democrats would like to compare Texas to, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, that the Republican Party in Texas or maybe not the Republican Party, but the Republican leadership has maybe t taken a less Trumpist tinge in its governing style than some of those other places. And that might have an impact on this too. I mean, Governor Greg Abbott is incredibly conservative. I don't think many people view him as Trumpist. And Dan Patrick has at times hitched his wagon very closely to Donald Trump, but doesn't necessarily govern in the same way or act in the same way as Trump. Is that, would you agree with that assessment? Well, sure, it's not a bad assessment. Um, yeah. Dan Patrick feels pretty Trumpy to me. Ken Paxton feels like Extremely. super Trumpy yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. Abbott has managed to walk a line, which I think is kind of interesting. You know, when, when both Don Huffines and Alan West ran against Greg Abbott, in the primary this last time, you know, the, the joke in speeches, mine and other people's was, Greg Abbott has two challengers from the right. I didn't know there was a right, mm -hmm. you know? Um, Greg, Greg Abbott is, is absolutely a conservative. Greg Abbott's policies are absolutely in line with the most, most conservative policies nationally. There is no doubt, no room, no, no, no ray of light, crack of light that you can see on that. Temperamentally, temperamentally, personality. I don't think he's Trumpy. Personality, I don't think he's Trumpy. And I think maybe that that's maybe the thing you're talking about. Yeah. And there, I mean, there seems to be a segment of the Republican Party that and it's debatable how 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 big of a segment it is. It's clearly not enough to push Greg Abbott into a runoff that no matter what he does, no matter how conservatively yeah. he governs, they view him as not one of us. I mean, I, I would be willing to bet, of course, he'll he'll object to this and he'll probably say something about it if he hears it publicly. I really don't give a shit, frankly. But I mean, it's I have real like two days left vibes on this podcast, don't I? <laughs> um, I guarantee you that Matt Rinaldi, the chair of the Republican Party of Texas, either thought very hard about not voting for Greg Abbott or didn't vote for Greg Abbott. Like, I don't think Greg Abbott is Matt Rinaldi's kind of guy. Now, Matt Rinaldi might say, of course, I voted for Greg Abbott. I'm the chair of the Republican Party. Maybe I didn't support him in the primary, but I supported him in the general. Or maybe I, I thought about not supporting him. The point is, you have people at the, at the highest levels of the party mm -hmm. who find Greg Abbott to be insufficiently something.
I mean, you had a protest outside of the governor's mansion during the primary, did you not, with Sid Miller participating? And you had Alan West, the former Matt Rinaldi's predecessor, Matt Rinaldi's, you know, uh, 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 the guy who had that job before, who like chose to run against the governor. Like, it's it's just so it's so odd to me to think that that the way Greg Abbott has governed his record creates any opening for somebody to, to, to the right of him. Again, I fact that I'm saying those words already is like what um to 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 attack him is not I mean that I so but but I don't but I don't but I don't think to your question that he reads to people as Trumpy his policies are quite in line with the policies of the previous four years like I don't see a lot of distance there like tell me one issue on which Greg Abbott and Donald Trump don't agree yeah I mean there's Stealing confidential documents, maybe that's. <laughs> but you know, but even in there, you won't see Greg Abbott speaking out against that kind of. No. Thing. So, yeah. all right, let's pause for a moment and hear from our sponsors. The Texas Bankers Association is the state's voice and advocate for the banking industry, and more than two hundred thousand bankers throughout Texas. Learn more at texasbankers.com. And Texas Hospital Association. Our need for hospitals didn't end with the pandemic. Join the Texas Hospital Association in supporting hospitals and Texas health. Find out more at THA.org. Okay, so Evan, I went back and looked at some of the articles, the the, the T-square post you wrote on the day the Tribune launched, some of the articles you were quoted on when it was announced you were leaving the Tribune. I was looking for some kind of big... you know, thing where you were really wrong, where the, the 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 Tribune turned out to be very different than the way you were envisioning it and describing it. But honestly, I didn't really see much there. It seems like the Tribune has in many ways kind of followed a path that that you envisioned when you laid it out. But one thing you really emphasized in those interviews, in those conversations at the time was the importance of being a nonpartisan outlet. Yeah. Do you feel like it's harder to do that in 2020, well, I guess soon to be 2023 Maybe. than it was in 2009? Well, on the one hand, on the other hand, okay, on the on the one hand, I don't think it is hard for news organizations to play for no team but the but the audience that they serve or the or the state they love enough to be honest about. Like, like I always say, we don't, we're not team red, we're not team blue, we're team Texas. And we're team Texans. We exist to serve the 30 million people of this state, to provide them with the information that they need to go about their daily lives, to understand the fights being waged in their name, the stakes they have and the outcomes of those fights. We want them to know, first of all, that there are elections. It seems like a lot of them don't know that when there are elections. Mm-hmm. We want them to know which candidates are on the ballot, which issues are on the ballot. We want to hold people accountable for them. We want to explain what's going on to them. I'm not conflicted about this. This to me is a no-brainer, both the need for it and also the ability to to execute upon it. We we don't get everything right. We're not perfect, but I think we do a pretty good job of that. And, And yet we're constantly attacked. I mean, sometimes we're attacked as being, you know, too conservative. I kind of laugh at that. And then 
we're attacked more frequently is, you know, oh, they're a tool of the Democratic Party. Oh, they're a tool of, of liberal of, of political thinking. Like, where's the evidence of that? Mm. There isn't any evidence of that. It's a convenient trope that people who want to attack back to the first part of our conversation want to undermine the media that they fall that they fall back. I will say, on the other hand, that we in the media business do ourselves no favors sometimes in the way that we go about our jobs, in the way that we frame stories, in the sources that we rely on to, to bolster a storyline. I don't think we, we try hard enough to talk to people in all places, from all points of view. Are those voices in our newsrooms? Are they in our heads? Not bad faith, not false equivalency, but real balance. You know, and I and I realize that right now there's this pushback against news organizations for both sidesing stuff. Don't both side stuff. This don't yeah, like you know, the, the school district in North Texas, you remember this, that felt obligated to teach Holocaust denialism mm -hmm. because you know, well, there's another side to the fact that the Holocaust existed, so we should teach that. That's balance. No, that's not balance. Um I think sometimes that we we don't do a good enough job trying to put ourselves in the shoes of people who are going to read our stuff, consume our journalism. We don't do a good enough job of asking ourselves, why don't people trust us? Mm -hmm. What is it that as an industry is going on here? And how can we continue to be as aggressive in holding people accountable, do the hard and important work that we do, and also not make unforced errors in doing that and give people reason to doubt us? You know, I'm, I have this, this idea now, kind of like I said, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the third hand, um, you're old enough, I think, to remember Pat Moynihan, mm -hmm. right? When he was a New York State Senator, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Mm -hmm. Dan, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said once famously, and journalists love to repeat that, we're entitled to our own opinions, we're not entitled to our own facts. Interestingly enough, that's a jump ball these days. And this is a big difference from, to go back to the difference from 13 years ago to today. It's a big difference. Truth is not truth in the eyes of a lot of people. Reality is a subjective construct. And, you know, I, I think that this is a huge problem, that we're not starting from an accepted set of facts and then people can diverge based on what they think about those facts. Like we can't even agree on the basics. I am prepared to say, just thinking back over the last three years, I am prepared to say, if you believe the pandemic was a hoax, or you believe climate change is not real, or you believe that the election of 2020 was stolen, you are not entitled to your own facts, per, mm -hmm. per Pat Moynihan. Mm -hmm. And we in the press have struggled. We've, we've contorted ourselves like a gymnast to try to hear those people and give those people the opportunity to have their voices heard. Searching for the truth is the job of journalism, but so is calling bullshit when bullshit needs to be called. And I sometimes think that calling bullshit on stuff like that or pointing out misinformation when misinformation is presented to us by people in elective office, that is viewed as bias. It's viewed as partisan. 
And I just think that's that's ridiculous. The truth is not bias. And so is it harder? Is it more complicated today? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. I think the the a lot of times the answer to this is just do good journalism and be Absolutely. thorough with it. And you know, because issues like election denialism, like of course, if someone is saying the election was rigged and there's no evidence that it was, we should we should point out that there's no evidence that there was, and we should be thoughtful about how we present the arguments of the people saying it was so as not to, you know, amplify misinformation. But it's also extremely important for everyone. It's not both sidesism to make a sincere effort to understand why these folks are saying the things that they're saying and what is driving them to do this. Because it's, it's, it's not just out of a desire for those folks to hear their voices in the news. It's no matter what your political spectrum is, to be an engaged citizen in this world, you need to understand right. where that site is coming from, what they're trying to accomplish and things like that. And if we are just ignoring a whole side, a whole political party or an ideal ideology that is having huge influence, we're failing our readers yeah. from across the political spectrum. And, and th this is, let, let's be clear. This is, I, I couldn't agree with everything you said more. Let's be clear. This is not the fringe. This is the mainstream in a lot of cases that is talking about this stuff. Mainstream. And, you know, we have an obligation as journalists to explain why has the point of view that we're talking about, which is completely without basis in fact, why is that point of view taken hold? We have an obligation and we fail to do our jobs if we don't attempt to explain it. Look, you and I know, because we've talked about this many times, that back to rural, mm -hmm. covering rural Texas, being intentional about the way we cover it, telling stories of communities in these parts of the state that don't normally get told where journalists typically do not go. I am proudest of our commitment to covering rural communities as I am, I'm proudest of as, as much as I am of anything else that we've done, that we have put two excellent reporters, Jamie Lozano and Pooja Selhotra on the ground in communities where, you know, an organization like the Tribune ordinarily would have said, well, there's not enough people in those communities. Nobody really cares about that stuff. No, we, we care about it. And we know that by writing about those communities, people at the legislature, who as much as they may bite their lips at us sometimes, we know they read us. Yeah. They're going to see those stories. And rural communities are going to be now in the ears of and in front of the eyes of people who pass laws and appropriate uh, budget dollars. I think that's so important. I think that is so important. It's one of the legacies that I'm proudest of at this organization. And it gets to this question of trying to understand why communities or people with a different point of view about the world have that point of view. It's our job. Yeah. Do you feel more or less concerned about the state of local news in 2023 yep. than you did in 2019? I feel that I did 2019 or 2009. Or 2009, yeah. Um, I actually feel better about the overall ecosystem because we were one of the first out of the gate to try what we're doing 13 years later and have been successful at. And after us have come a bunch of people who, to some degree or another, based on the way that we've done what we've done, have gone back home to their communities or their states and created organizations that they describe as the Texas Tribune of blank, California, Nevada, Mississippi, Baltimore, Houston, Mm -hmm. coming up soon. Um, that's actually a sign for a, a sign of, of, of progress. And there's a cause for optimism there. 
I actually think that's great. I will say that as it relates to the for-profit newspapers, not just in Texas, but everywhere else, the concerns that Ross and I and John Thornton had in 2009 turned out to have been more right than we knew. Mm-hmm. We knew things were bad. We feared they'd get worse. We did not know how right we were. And so in that sense, I do have some pessimism, but it's tempered by optimism because all over the country, there are these green shoots, right? There are these organizations that are, that are coming into existence to cover local communities. And that means that there are more places to go to get reliable, credible, independent news. How can I not be more optimistic than, uh, you know, th- th- than I was 13 years ago when that's the case? Yeah, it feels like in some ways the the challenges feel more complicated now than they did. And, and, and maybe that's just as as I have evolved and think about these things more as a person who is helping lead a newsroom as opposed to just trying to write my stories. But I mean, just thinking about questions about, you know, will Twitter exist a year from now or how so much of what people are reading nowadays is influenced by algorithms that prioritize and incentivize kind of uh, the most kind of extreme or uh, anger inducing, you know, content and things like that. Um, you know, these feel like these are challenges beyond just, you know, is the Dallas Morning News getting enough print advertising dollars to sustain its newsroom? Right. Although the economics of the of the media business, which were the question that we all had in 09, remains the question today. I mean, everything you're saying is true. I would say that at the absolute apex of of this discussion remains the question of of the economics of the media business. Many of the newsrooms that we you know, know well in Texas, care a lot about, have friends who work there. We root for them every day. We're not competitors, we're collaborators. We, you know, we're all part of the, same, of the same orbit. Their circumstances economically over the last 13 years are without question worse. Mm-hmm. Those newsrooms have been hollowed out. The resources available, human and financial, to do the jobs that they're there to do are much fewer in number and you know in, in smaller in amount than they were back then. And that's unfortunately not a trend that's going to reverse itself. And so then the question becomes, what do we do as an alternative to that? Not saying that we want to replace them, but as an as an additional, you know, or in the water. Like I I I I want Texas is better when there is a a properly functioning, healthy Dallas Morning News. Mm -hmm. Texas is better when there is a properly functioning, healthy Houston Chronicle. Dallas County and and, and, uh, Harris County are two of the fastest growing counties in the entire country, not just in Texas. The DFW Metro over the last year was the fastest growing Metro in the entire country. Mm -hmm. Harris County is 4.6 million people, which would make it the, the 25th largest state in the country. These are hugely important communities. Dallas is growing. Dallas County is growing. The morning news is shrinking. Houston is growing. Harris County is growing. The Chronicle is shrinking. What they can do is shrinking. How many people they have available to do it is shrinking. And so that's an existential problem that no one person with good wishes can solve. That comes down to economics. So all the other stuff, I agree with you. But the economics remains the big problem. So it was announced earlier this week that John Thornton, the uh, your co-founder, uh, is is stepping down from the board, which means that all three of the the Trib's co-founders, uh, you, Ross Ramsey, and and John, are all leaving. You know, in the twenty twenty two calendar year, what 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 should readers kind of make 
of that? Well, first of all, John, I wanted just to clarify quickly. John, John is actually the founder, and Ross and I were brought on subsequently as co-founders. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really John's thing in the sense that John had the idea originally in 08, founded the Tribune, brought us aboard. We ultimately launched in 09. John deserves an enormous amount of credit for having done this. He certainly did not have to. Um, look, John had intended to step off the board some time ago. Um, there's nothing to it except he'd been on the board for 13 years. If you've been on the board for 13 years, even the board of an organization you started, mm. it's time. John's got other things he's he's doing in the world, business world. He's supporting other journalism things, particularly the American Journalism Project, which he co-founded. And, and John believes, as I believe, as Ross believes, that the Tribune is in such good shape right now that the founders being here simply for the sake of being here is no longer necessary. Honestly, if I'm a reader of the Tribune and I see that this is the case, my response would be, God, they must think that everything is is okay, is good enough that they no longer need to be there. And, you know, everybody does things for different reasons. Ross and I talked about it. John and I talked about it. Why did I decide to leave? I decided to leave because I'd been doing this job for as long as I had. And my previous job at Texas Monthly, which you've alluded to a couple of times, I was there for 18 years. So I was there for 13 years at the Tribune, 31 years, two jobs with literally a weekend between them. <laughs> and at a certain point, you just go, you know, I'd like not to be running stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't love the Tribune any less. In fact, I love it more every day than I did on the first day. Um, but I had confidence in where the Tribune was financially and journalistically enough that I could make that decision. Ross would tell you a version of that same story. Ross said, I'm superfluous. Of course, Ross would never be superfluous. But Ross would tell you that he had become superfluous, that the organization had become a thing that did not need him in the role he was playing. And John would certainly have told you that some time ago and would tell you that today. So we have confidence. And if I'm a reader, I think Tribune must be doing great. Well, I look forward to finally being able to pitch our new CEO on a uh, TribFest programming where we watch the Longhorn football game and I provide commentary like mystery science theater about what's going on in the game. So, yeah. Um, you know, uh, sure. Uh, uh you know what, you, you, you don't have me to kick around anymore. And uh, the new CEO may be more, uh, open to your bullshit than I was. So good. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, um, you know, I think uh, that is all the time we have, but I'll just take a point of personal privilege to say thank you for everything. You know, it's uh, um, I agree that the Tribune is stronger than it's ever been before and I'm excited to see where it goes from here. But I also know that you've been so vital to it and creating this place that I personally love working for and really appreciate. So um, it is uh, you've been very important to, you know, the state of Texas, but but my life and my family's life um, specifically. So thank you so much for for everything you've done. Well, my only regret is we should have hired you the first time. <laughs> Things would well, be you know, I, if only we'd hired you the first time. Yes. Well, you know, it does feel good to 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 you know uh, have have made it here and have outlasted you in the end. You know, you did it. You did it. <laughs> tell your, right, well, your uh, parents hello for me. What's what's that? Tell your parents hello for me. I will. I will. All right. Well, thank you to Evan. Thank you to our producer, uh, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, Texas Women's University, Educate Texas, Texas Biomed, and Texas State Technical College. We'll talk to you next week.
Looks like the office is pretty empty there. Movers came today. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I guess I, guess I have to quit now. <laughs> I, I have so. no place to go. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, you know, I tweeted about this the other day. You know, I found a Las Manitas menu. Well, you probably never even knew Las Manitas, right? I, I, yeah, I know of it. Yeah. yeah. But... No, I mean, I found, I found a piece of Liberty Lunch when they did, when they t- uh, demolished Liberty Lunch to build Lambert's. Mike Hall and I went over there and got pieces of Liberty Lunch, the building. <laughs> I have that. Wow. I'm old, I'm old Austin, man. What can I tell you? <laughs> I'm old Austin. 